Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thank everyone for coming. This is, I've never seen so many people in this room. It's amazing. Um, we might have to open the windows at some point. Uh, thanks so much to Anthony for, for offering his services very kindly. We didn't even have to nag him and drag him down here. He offered. So um, even whatever, if whatever he has to say now is terrible, it doesn't matter. It's, <laughs> we're already in front. Um, it will be wonderful because we all know that Anthony, Anthony is wonderful at, at election anal analysis and particularly regarding the Senate. I have all kinds of opinions that I'm going to put to him afterwards. Um, but please join me in welcoming Anthony. And well, welcome. Um, of well. <laughs> uh, so, the election on the 2nd of July. The 45th for the House of Representatives. The 7th double dissolution. And like some of the earlier double dissolutions, um, are really a contrived mechanism for an early, slightly early election. It was only the fourth winter election. Um, someone, some journalist, did ring me up and asked, uh, is it true that they don't hold winter elections in Australia because people don't turn out to vote? To which my response is, no, the reason they don't hold winter elections is you can't hold them in winter because of the Constitution, because you can't have a Senate election in June or July. Anyway. It is unusual to have a winter election. And it was probably the longest flagged election maybe since 1910. We knew when the election was going to be, and we knew it from a very long time out. And that was all because of the government had to go through the process of creating the triggers. You had to navigate the issues of the constitution to get the, had to bring forward the budget so that you could get the election called by the 11th of May without having the governor general sort of asking any difficult questions which would block supply. That's arrange the supply bill. Uh, and they held it all on the 2nd of July just so they wouldn't lose a year off their term. So it was a rather contrived mechanism to achieve this double dissolution and given the result of the election, did, did it actually work for them or not? Well, what I will do is look at the election in three different particular ways. And I'm particularly looking at the Senate election rather than the overall uh, result of the election. There are three things to look at. The first is the overall result of that Senate election. And, and basically, that comes down to what happened to the share of the party vote. Uh, now, this is something I'm preparing for the chapter, on the, uh, chapter in the book on the federal election. Um, much of the work on the party share and party, party details will be done in the general section of the book, but there are a couple of issues to do with just the Senate which are worth looking at. Secondly, how did the double dissolution impact on the results? Seeing they've gone to such an effort to have a double dissolution, how did it make the result different? And third, how did the new electoral system work? Because that's probably the most interesting aspect of this election. Now, this is a, just a simple graph of minor party votes that at elections for the House, for the Senate, and the black line here is a difference since 1949, uh, which is when the current PR system was introduced for the Senate. As you can see, there's been a general drift upwards over the last two decades in both the House and the Senate. And in the last two or three elections, a bit of an increase in the gap between that, the vote between the two houses. 
But still, um, at the last election, it's about 11% difference between the two houses. Much of that created by one nation contesting one house and not the other. Darren Hinch, the Liberal Democrats doing one in one house and not the other. So some of that difference is occurring. But what we do know about the Senate is the reason it comes up with a different representation in the House is largely down to the electoral system. This graph shows there is a tendency to get some minor difference between the two houses. But much of the difference in representation produced is due to the electoral system, not the voter behaviour. The one oddity when you plot the differences is there are elections, for instance, 1990, where the vote in both houses went up, but the gap between the two didn't, didn't change. 1993, that was the, the Democrats' election when they did so well in 1990 and 1993. It seems that maybe, and in 1984, this was caused by the nuclear disarmament party of Peter Garrett, nearly got elected to the Senate that year. So there is a... There is a tendency for some difference between the two houses to be called by specific effects. Some of these ones in the 1960s are to do with separate elections, but certainly 1990s, a clear sign of an election where there was something which caused the difference between the two houses. There's a number of elections where disenchantment occurred in both houses at the same time. What we're seeing at the moment, well, I think some of that has to do with the number of minor parties we're getting on the ballot papers and the sheer size of the Senate ballot papers. Maybe that's confusing voters. Remember, 9% of the vote for the Liberal Democrats in 2013 when no one had heard of them, almost completely caused by confusion. 3% of the national vote. Um, and this is a, another graph which just shows the average candidates at House and Senate elections over the years. And it's, it drifted up from 3 in 1949 to about 4 in the mid-80s. And then it began to rise. Uh, this drop here, this is an average figure, so the drop is caused entirely by it being a double dissolution. Um, so therefore, the number of candidates increased, but the average per vacancy declined. The, the, the minor party not vacancies not, uh, candidates seem to have levelled out a bit, but the Senate has continued to grow, and um, that was largely due to the old electoral system, which I'll, I'll go on to discuss in a little while. Um, and just to show it, when I'm not doing it as a, an average, I'm showing the actual numbers. This is the number of Senate candidates in New South Wales since 1919. And you can see the average sort of wobbles along here, but, and you can see that's 151 in New South Wales at the most recent election. There's been a sharp increase over the last three to four elections. 74 was the spike in the Whitlam government when there was an attempt to, to stack the ballot paper. 87 is a double dissolution, so you had more candidates, but the numbers since have clearly been caused by something else, and that something else is this issue with the electoral system, which I'll come on to discussing. Before I go on to that, though, what about the double dissolution <coughs> itself? What impact did that have on the result of the election? Well, first, it halved the quota from 14.3 to 7.7% for, for minor, and, and made it much easier for minor parties to be elected. A number of people kept pointing out that One Nation got a, a higher vote in 2001 and got, one, and got no seats, and got four seats this time with a much lower vote. And the simple answer to that is partly the preferential voting changes but largely just to do with a lower quota. Um, and that lower quota negated some of the impact we might have seen from the, from the new electoral system. And importantly, and I'll explain this a moment, in a moment, it made it much harder for the coalition to retain its six seats in New South Wales, Queensland and WA. By going to a double dissolution, they virtually guaranteed they would lose seats because they could not retain those seats, for, as I'll explain in a moment. And that's because the lower quota, if a party had 40% of the vote, the double dissolution had 5.2 quotas. At a half Senate election, they would have had 2.8 quotas and end up with three seats. So if a party got 40% of two elections in a row, it would get six of the 12 vacancies. But a double dissolution would be more likely to get five. 
And um, what I've taken here is, it's a bit ugly, I'm sorry, but um, this is the three states where the coalition had six seats. WA is the slightly orange color. Wrong. Queen, light blue is Queensland, dark blue is, is New South Wales. Three house quotas is this lot, is that level there, and five and a half double dissolution quotas is there, roughly the same. The coalition over the couple of previous elections hadn't got anywhere near five and a half double dissolution quotas, but had achieved three <coughs> quotas in each case. So by calling the double dissolution, they're guaranteed they would lose three seats, which is exactly what happened. They should have gained one in Tasmania, but that's more of a campaign effect to do with the the Tasmanian election campaign ran. But in going for a double dissolution, they cleared out the minor parties that were already there, who were there for long terms, but they certainly didn't guarantee that they would end up with a, a better result for themselves. And this was, is the new Senate, given after the election, they divided and decided who got long and short terms. The interesting thing is that the coalition got 16, has allocated itself 16 of the long-term state senators, later 13 of the long-term three Greens. There are four of the minor parties, uh, actually, well, including the Greens, there are seven minor parties got long terms and 13 got short terms. The one impact that will come from this double dissolution is at the next election, if Labor wins the next election and you'd have to say they have a reasonable chance of winning the next election, they will be the beneficiaries of the changes to the voting system because that's when all of the minor parties are going to get cleared out under the new, under new system with the higher quota unless there is a continued rise in their vote for minor parties. So one of the consequences of holding a double dissolution is the government changed the composition of the crossbenchers, hasn't received any benefit for doing the changes, and it may be whoever wins the next election which will be the beneficiary of the changes because of the sheer number of people, the minor parties who are going to have to face election at the same time. Now in many ways the, the system that was introduced in 2016 is the fifth Senate electoral system. 1903 to 1917, we had block voting, got a ballot paper, candidates in uh, alphabetical order, no ordering by party. You marked three boxes with an X if there were three vacancies. Uh, it tended to produce um, winner-takes-all systems. In one state, the party would tend to win every seat. By 1917, parties were winning every seat in the state. Uh, they talked about the windscreen wiper <coughs> effect. From one election to another, you'd have a massive switch from one side to the other. When they introduced preferential voting in 19, ahead of the 1919 election, they had to do something with the Senate. You couldn't number one ballot paper and then have to use ticks and crosses on the other. So they changed the system so you numbered the preferences, initially a limited number, um, though it was effectively full preferential voting. And then they elected candidates one after the other. They held a <coughs> single member electorate for the whole state, elected a candidate, excluded that candidate, distributed their preferences, did the count again, and the result was effectively exactly the same as block voting, um, that one party would tend to win all the seats in each state. So the Senate, up until the introduction of proportional representation in '49, tended to be a backwater. It was, it was more often than not dominated by the government to the day. The government could always threaten the Senate with a double dissolution because of the tendency of the government to, uh, a, a party to win all the seats. And it was only occasionally, like during the Scullin government and the Cook government, when the opposition controlled the upper house, that the Senate really became a, a much of a focus. Proportional representation, which made the numbers much more balanced in 1949, made the Senate a more powerful institution by giving it a mandate, denying governments clear majorities. And the other thing, um, and probably weakened the ability to use the double dissolution power, even though we've seen more of them since 1949. A couple of important changes came in that period. The moving to full preferential voting, introducing grouping on the ballot paper in 1922 by party, moving to the horizontal ballot paper in 1940, and importantly, 
the time, or it wasn't important that noticed that way, the parties were given the ability to order the candidates in their list as they wanted them. That didn't matter under the old system because one party tended to win all the vacancies. But once proportional representation was introduced, the ability of a party to order its candidates gave it power over who got elected from their ticket. And that's a power that's still very important to this day. 49, we saw the introduction of proportional representation, PRSTV, a proportional representation <coughs> by single transferable vote, which is generally the way that systems like the Senate and Hare Clark are categorized in literature. It required full preferential voting. You had to number every square. There were almost no savings provisions apart from, I think you could leave the last square blank. In 1984, we abandoned that system, introduced the divided ballot paper above and below the lines. Block voting, um, ticket voting was introduced, which gave parties control over preferences. And then the most recent system, which got rid of the tickets, retained the ballot papers, but introduced optional preferential voting and handed the power of preferences from the parties back to voters. Now, for all the, um, I'll, I'll come back to informal voting in a minute. I'll deal with this first. To explain what happened in 2013, you want to try and compare the results we had under the ticket voting PRSTV system to what might have occurred under a non-preferential system. The nearest <coughs> comparison is list PR with the highest remainder uh, method. If, if this was a non-preferential system, and you can do it in, because in the Senate most votes are for the top of the ticket, you can treat it like list PR to a large extent. The highest remainders have got the advantage of hopefully winning the last seats, but because preferences exist, you can change the ordering of who gets elected. Um, and so when you do that, and you, um, you need to categorize, you need to compare the results we got with what might have occurred under non-preferential list, list PR. And to do that, I categorized, I've gone back to 1984, and categorized all seats won into three categories. Filled quotas, which is senators elected on that first count. Uh, a party had 2.3 quotas, it elects two senators, they're filled quotas, it has a partial quota, a remainder of 0.3. The highest remainder of senators are elected later in the count on preferences, but they started the count with the highest partial count. So if a party got 2.9 quotas at the start of the count, it elects two as filled quotas, and usually you'd expect it's 0.9 to, to get the, a seat with the highest remainder. And then I've categorized other seats which are trailing wins, which is senators who are elected who weren't leading as the highest remainder at the start of the count. This is impossible under um, non-preferential list PR, but it is possible under preferential voting. And then I've also gone through and categorized, counted up the number of parties that were passed by these trailing winners who won the seat. So how many parties that were second or third on that initial partial quota how many of them got up and how many parties did they pass to get there? And so this table categorizes all the elections since 1984 by the categories. <coughs> Down here, I've got the trailing wins, usually a small handful, two, four, one, until you get to 2013 and there's nine. This is the giant ballot papers, Ricky Muir <coughs> and Co. And the parties passed, there's generally about one per trailing win. A third, a second place party gets ahead of a, a trailing winner. Until they get to 2013, and there were 32 parties passed, completely out of all proportion with all previous examples. And, and that's what was wrong with the system. Suddenly, preferences were playing a hugely more important role. Another measure of this, which I've not done here, is to actually look at who got elected and who didn't get elected uh, on those initial quotas. So Ricky Muir, who I think had 0.05 of a quota or some very low number, 
and Helen Kroger, who was third on the Liberal ticket, started with about 0.8 of a quota. The massive disproportion, a, a sort of flow of preferences you wouldn't see under any other system. Now, the, the reason that figure was 32 was, of course, two people, Ricky Muir and Wayne Drockillage. In Victoria, Ricky Muir got from 0.5% of the vote. He received 100% of the ticket votes from 19 parties to reach the point where he was one of the last five parties. He was up against Palmer United, uh, the Greens, the Liberals, and the, sixth, uh, the Family First, and Ricky Muir were the last five. And he got 100% of preferences from 19 parties to reach that point. When you looked at his below-the-line votes for the same parties, he got 6%. People who were given their own preferences didn't give preferences to Ricky Muir because they'd never heard of him. And that's what was wrong with the old system, was that preferences were reaching somebody that the voters themselves had never heard of. And exactly the same happened with Wayne Dropulich in Western Australia. He got 0.2% of the vote, 100% of preferences from 18 parties, and only 13% of the below-the-line preferences. So if you look at that below-and-above-the-line vote under the old system, there's clearly evidence that voters were doing something different from what the tickets were, were being arranged. And of course, that's all been changed by the new electoral system, <coughs> and, and as, as we'll see. Now, the 2016 changes, <coughs> as most of you will know, and I forgot to bring my wonderful examples, unfortunately. The divided ballot paper was retained with above-the-line voting for parties and below-the-line voting for candidates. Group ticket voting was abolished, and full preferential voting <coughs> below-the-line was also abolished. Ballot paper suggested up to six preferences above the line or up to 12 below the line, and there were very generous savings provisions. And the very generous savings provisions are very important. For all the criticism of group ticket voting in the ballot paper, the one thing it did is it solved informal voting. And this is a graph of informal voting from 1919 to today in the Senate. This is before ticket voting was introduced, and the average was 9.1%. It is extraordinary that over six decades nobody did anything about that. You know, there were discussions, thoughts, but nothing happened. And so we continued with one in ten votes being informal for six <coughs> decades until the introduction of group ticket voting, and the informal vote's been three and a half percent since. Any attempt to introduce, to change the system and bring back full preferential voting would have done exactly that. And there's some of the statistics I'll show um, <coughs> in, in future, in coming <coughs> slides show. That's exactly what we saw from the data. So, Group ticket voting had one advantage, but all those distortions of the preferences were the, the price you paid for lowering the informal vote. What I've got done is gone through all the ballot paper detail that the Electoral Commission has released and categorised ballot papers under the new system by what voters did for them. And across the whole country, 3% of votes were just ones. I'll just clarify that. You had to first sort out whether it was formal above or below the line and then figure out which one the Electoral Commission had used. If there were duplicates, you had to take them out of it. You had to turn ticks and crosses into ones. So you had to do a bit of sieving first. So what I've got left here is ballot papers with valid sequences. Some people might have tried to number more, but they mucked up the numbering, so it's cut short. So this is the result having sieved the data down. 3% of voters just voted one. 3.6 had between two and five preferences. 81.2% of voters did exactly what the instructions suggested, which is at least six preferences. They only had six preferences, and that was it. So it was 4.8, got between 7 and 12 preferences. It sort of dropped off after 12. Some people must have read the instructions below the line and filled in 12 numbers. That's all that happens. 0.8% of people went beyond 12. Oh, this is where you start to get more errors in the sequences. And 6.5% went below the line. That's double the last election. 3.5% were below the line last time. 
6.5% below the line this time. Most spectacularly in Tasmania, 28% of people went below the line and they voted deliberately for candidates. And as we saw, we saw something we haven't seen for five decades, that Lisa Singh, who'd been denoted to demoted to number six on the Labor ticket, she not only defeated the fifth Labor candidate to get elected, she was actually declared elected before the fourth Labor candidate. She got nearly 35% of the Labor vote in the electorate of Denison, which she used to represent in state parliament, uh, which suggests Labor made a terrible mistake not picking her as the candidate in 2010 when it was won by Andrew Wilkie. But there's a real friends and neighbours effect because she did very well in Denison and Franklin, less so in the north of the state. But 28% went below the line, and that's a, a huge change on previous elections. And clearly, being able to only have the number up to 12 squares made it possible for voters to do that. And of course, Tasmanian voters are used to picking and choosing their candidates um, um, because of the Hare Clark system. Another figure I've highlighted is this one here. The rate of one only voting was twice as high in New South Wales. I don't know if that's a, uh, an effect of the state having the highest proportion of non-English non speaking voters. Uh, people thinking they've seen something similar with the Legislative Council ballot paper in New South Wales, where you only have to have one. Or the other option may be it's the Ray Hadley effect, because he spent nearly every morning attacking the AEC because they wouldn't be honest and tell, tell everyone you only had to vote one. So he was talking about that every morning. So that stands out clearly as a difference in New South Wales. So the rates of just six voting was from 60% in 61.1 in Tasmania to 83.5% in Victoria. Um, so clearly the message got through from the Electoral Commission that they had to number more squares. The other point I'd make is this is 6.6% of the vote, it's about 900,000 ballot papers. If they'd been really strict on the formality criteria, they would have all been informal. Every vote under six would have been informal. So there had to be a savings provision that was attacking upon that. But this, this clearly shows that the, the new system works and the instructions got through. Um, it must also be said uh, a huge victory for the Electoral Commission who had to advertise this and then had to scan the ballot papers for the first time. So they, they did quite well to actually count these ballot papers. Because to count five million preferential ballot papers under the PRSTV system is very complex. You've just got to get them into the computer in the first place. Now this is the rate of ticket voting in Tasmania and in the five mainland states. Now, you, know, you can see it started about 85, just above 85% in 1984, drifted up to 95% pretty quickly and stayed there, rose up as the number of candidates increased. That's the first significant decline. It's the lowest rate since 1990 of below the line voting. And you can see the impact on Tas in Tasmania, clearly. There's a huge increase, a decrease in above the line voting, increase in below the line voting. The Tasmanian voters have always made more use of the system. But as the number of candidates um, increased from 20 to 30 to 50 to 60. Fewer and fewer voters were prepared to take the risk of trying to number every square. Um, it's quite an effort to try and get 60 numbers in sequence, and it's not something you ever have to do normally in life. Um, just this is just the categorization, same categorization by party, and it shows not a lot of difference from party to party. The highest rate of six only voting was the coalition with 86%, uh, usually under 80% for most of the minor parties. Um, the rate of one and two to five voting was higher for the Labour Party, only 7.6 there. So they would have lost a lot of votes for the informal votes if it wasn't for the savings provisions. Uh, Blood line voting much higher for the Greens, 12.3. Nick Xenophon team, 11.6. Jackie Lammy, who most of her votes were, of course, in Tasmania, 22.3. So not a lot of difference from party to party. Uh, even under the old system, we tended to see more voting below the line from the minor parties. More of them ventured below the line, knowing that the, uh, the 
difficult, it wasn't going to be quite as difficult. Now, of course, there were dire warnings before the election that this would disenfranchise up to 3 million voters because their votes would exhaust. Uh, fears of massive one-only voting did not eventuate, but there still was exhaustion um, that occurred at the election. Um, now, if some of you follow my blog, I had some of these figures up there, and they're on my blog at the moment, so I won't go into too much detail here. But what I've tried to do is categorise exhaustive preferences. And if you go to the Electoral Commission's tally sheets, at the end of the total, at the end of the sheets, you get a total of exhausted votes. And some people, like Nick Economy, have been using the numbers totaled from those sheets. This just comes to just over a million votes were exhausted at the end of the count. The problem is, is the AEC continued to exclude candidates to the very end because they had to declare candidates in an order of 1 to 12. So in Victoria, <coughs> having got 12 candidates to the point where they're elected, they then excluded the 13th candidate family first to determine the order of 11th and 12th. And at that point, there was an extra 100,000 exhausted votes. Now, at that point, there was no need for those votes to be distributed. The decision had already been made. So this was a false exhaustion rate. And I recalculated that, and the figure comes down to a little over 700,000. So using the gross figure, it's 7.5% exhausted at the end of the count, and 5.1 using this slightly more accurate figure. Um, so again, that's nothing like 3 million. But I, I've gone further and examined the ballot papers further because the question wasn't about the total exhausted rate. The question was about how the minor party votes would go. If people have voted for one party over another, if they went out and they voted for the Renewable Energy Party and then they went for you know, the Australian Liberty Alliance and the Anti-Pedophile League and you know, a couple of other little minor parties and then stopped at six, then none of their choices were going to get elected. So they exhausted them. So what was going to happen to those exhausted votes. And so I've tried to, um, uh, I'll come back to that. What, um, when you go through that and you break the detail down, you find that if there was a range of parties left at the end of the count, so in Victoria, in some of the states, I think in Queensland, you had the Labour Party was still there, the Coalition was still there, One Nation was in the count, the Liberal Democrats, Nick Xenophon. So there was a range of parties there. The exhaustion rates were much lower. You're only seeing 30 to 40% exhaustion amongst all the little tiny parties. But if some of those options weren't there at the end of the count, you saw a much higher exhaustion rate. Um, if you, in New South Wales, the, the last seats came down to, uh, sorry, the parties that elected candidates were the Coalition, Labor, the Liberal Democrats, One Nation, and the last excluded candidate was the Christian Democrats. If you take every other ballot paper for a party on the ballot paper, there was about 690,000 of them, and say how many of them reached one of those parties that elected a candidate, how many votes exhausted? It was about 20%. So that the rates, if there was a range of parties there, the voters would reach them. Now, technically, because of the way the count's conducted, some of those preferences never get operationalised. If your preferences are directed to Labor, the Labor votes have all been excluded, can't reach Labor, but the voters don't fill in ballot papers on that basis. Nobody can know who gets elected in what order. So the assumption is, if I just look at the ballot papers and look at who gets elected, that's a better measure of whether the minor party vote is reaching somebody that elects as opposed to somebody who doesn't. However, if I exclude Labor and the Greens, because in New South Wales they both did get knocked out early, and at the end of the count all you had left was the Coalition, the Liberal Democrats, One Nation, and the Christian Democrats. So you had four right-wing parties, essentially. Um, if you look at the breakdown of all the minor parties that were excluded to that point, if you look at the, um, 
uh, euthanasia, uh, voluntary euthanasia party and other parties which are of the left, you'll find an exhaustion rate of 70 to 80%. Those people went to the Greens, they went to Labour, but they didn't make a choice between the Christian Democrats and Family First, which was the very last choice. People are going to do one to six. They tended to drift to parties they knew. The second thing is, um, under the old ticket voting system, the minor parties used to engage in corralling, is that it's like um, keepings off in football. You have the major parties in the middle and the micro parties would kick the ball around to each other. So they'd stack their preferences together and in the end hope to reach, reach a, a quota, which is how Ricky Muir got elected, of course. Um, when we look at the preference flows here, and I, I don't have a slide with this in full detail, at every exclusion of a micro party, you see a drift of those preferences to Labor, the Coalition and the Greens. And if you look at Labor and the Coalition, you'll find one in 10 voters of both parties will preference the other major party. These were preference flows that you never saw under the old system because they were captured by the ticket and directed in a particular way. The minute voters are making their preference decisions, you're lucky to ever see a preference flow above 30 or 40% in one direction. Because uh, particularly minor parties, they never got a hard to vote card, um, they're just going on names and they know the names of the parties. One Nation did particularly well on preferences this election. When you look through the counts of the preferences in nearly every state, as small right-wing parties go out, there's a constant drift of preferences to One Nation. Why to One Nation and why not to the Australian Liberty Alliance, for instance? Well, because people knew who One Nation was. They had no idea who the Australian Liberty Alliance was. There's a, fair, a pretty obvious distinction going on when you look at it step by step through the count as to where minor party preferences are going, and a clear distinction between left and right uh, that's going on here. Now, what I have done, um, that three million figure there at the start, as opposed to 700,000 figure I calculated, was based on a double dissolution. <coughs> and because the quota is lower, of course, more preferences, fewer preferences will play a part in who gets elected. More party votes end up close to the quota, and you're less likely to get large number of preferences exhausting just because the quota is lower. Um, what, we, what I've done is to, at the end of the count, the Electoral Commission did what's called a Section 282 count. They recounted all the votes, excluded everybody else except the 12 elected candidates, distributed all the preferences, and declared those 12 members elected. And so what I've done, I've taken all the ballot papers and said, for each of these micro-parties, did they end up with one of the elected candidates at a six-member election? This provides a better measure of how many votes exhausted rather than reach somebody who's elected. And, I must say, I'm, I'm being, in saying exhausted here, I'm looking particularly at, the argument about exhaustion is that somebody votes for a party, it gets excluded, the preferences get distributed, and their vote doesn't elect somebody. Um, that's the thing I'm looking back. Under the old system, of course, one thirteenth of the voters at a double dissolution wouldn't have elected anybody because there's always that leftover quota. Under optional preferential voting, what happens is most of the exhausted votes drift into that unelected quota is that rather than, rather than at the end of the count, one thirteenth of the vote before somebody who isn't elected, under this system, most of those votes ended up as exhausted. And so most votes ended up electing somebody that didn't exhaust. But anyway, my interest is to look at these votes that have been cast and didn't reach somebody who was elected. And I've done this using the parties that are elected. And... Um, there were 2.8 million ballot papers for parties other than those elected under the sections 282 count. So that's coalition in every state, Labour in every state, the Greens in three states, One Nation in one, which is Queensland, Darren Hinch, 
in Victoria, Nick Xenophon in South Australia, and the Jackie Lammy Network in Tasmania. So they were the party that would have been elected under Section 282 count, which is the equivalent of a six-member, a half-cent election. How many votes from micro-parties didn't reach one of those candidates, didn't get to them? As I said, there's 2.8 million, which is like 22.8% of the vote. Of all those ballot papers, 27% didn't reach, didn't get to one of those parties. So I'm coming up there with a figure of about 780,000. So that's another measure of the exhausted vote. And again, nothing like the 3 million figure that was quoted. So wh why was that 3 million figure wrong? One, it assumed that everybody would just exhaust, would just go one, and nothing else. Um, this was an issue in the debate on the bill. Um, the only experience we had was the New South Wales system, which is very similar to what the Senate adopted, except in New South Wales, the instructions say vote one and then give further preferences. And in New South Wales, 80% of people just vote one. So that was a starting point for people who said there would be three million exhausted, which it would be like the New South Wales system. Counter to that is the ACT system. The ACT ballot paper says at the last election, give one or give five preferences or seven preferences. Um, but actually a, f a single one is formal. And at the ACT election, only 2% of people give fewer preferences than the suggestion. So 98% of people give five or more, seven or more. And 75% give exactly the number that was suggested, which is very similar to the 82% we saw at the Senate. So, which was a better model? Clearly the ACT model was a better model of how the Senate would <coughs> behave in this. And so the three million figure was wildly exaggerated because it just assumed everyone would go one and stop. But it was also wrong because everyone assumed that if you voted for a micro-party, that all the micro-parties were homogenous. You just stack them together like Cuisinaire and, and produce a quota, which is exactly what they'd done under the old ticket voting system with their corralling of preferences and harvesting. They were able to add them together. The minute the parties didn't have control over preferences, the voters gave their own preferences. And as I've been explaining here, and I've, I've explained on some of those graphs there, we saw clear drifts of preferences from micro-parties to other parties. Um, in Victoria in 2013, Family First preferences helped elect Ricky Muir, got him there at the end. But if you look at the preferences of below-line Family First preferences, 75% of them went to the Liberal Party, not to Ricky Muir. We know that voters have their own preferences and they don't correspond to the deals that are published. So that's the other right reason the three million figure was wrong, is that most of the people who were voting, who gave their one to six, didn't vote for all the micro-parties, they gave it to a significant party. And it wasn't necessarily just Labour, Liberals or the Greens. What I should do is actually do this table just for Labour, Liberals and Greens, because that was one of the arguments, is how many would exhaust before reaching that level. I did have a go at that, I came to about 35 or 40% exhausted without reaching one of the more significant parties. But still, that meant about 60% of those who did vote for a micro-party still went to one of the traditional parties. So, what do, we, what do we know from all this? Well, I think I would say the system worked. Um, some people hate the system because, because of the result. They hate it because one nation got elected and they blame the electoral system. Well, the fact that there are four one-nation senators instead of one is down to a double dissolution, not to the electoral system. Uh, Pauline Hanson would have been elected almost certainly at a half-cent election, but not the other three one-nation senators. Um, I would say the electoral system tended to work. Voters gave an expression of preferences. There is nobody who was elected at this election without you being able to say that it, they were elected on the intent of the voter. Nobody was elected from half a percent. Um, the lowest, uh, the last Liberal in Victoria and David Lionhelm in New South Wales were the only two who were elected significantly short of a quota. 
because the exhausted rates at the end in both states were quite high. Um, so I, I would say that the new system was a success. Um, whether the double dissolution success is another matter entirely, and I'm sure mm -hmm. there are some in the coalition who think now twice about why they went down that strategy, or if they were going to have a double dissolution, why they didn't have it much earlier. But for all the fuss, for all the noise, I would say that this electoral system has been a success compared to um, the old one. I set down three rough criteria before the election that voters have a better idea where their preferences go. The system did that. Um, secondly, that, it, the, uh, that no vote under the old system should become informal, and largely that was correct. Someone who went one, two, two, two would become informal under the new system. But, um, essentially, that criteria was met. The one thing which wasn't met, it became much more complex for the Electoral Commission to count. But I think the uh, success of the scanning has shown that uh, if they want to, they can count more complex counting systems. And having got this out of the way, which is the issue of how voters react to a ballot paper, what are the options offered to them? I think there are further debates in this area to go on, which is to do with how the actual votes are counted. But the one thing we didn't need to do was start with the process of counting the votes and the formulas, because that's not what was causing the old system. What was causing the problems under the old system was the options offered to voters. So um, I'll stop there and have you do a Q&A and take lots of opinions from other people. Changes were summarised as being to stop minor parties getting elected. Harvesting, yeah. Well, what was summarised was to stop harvesting, but what they said it would stop minor parties getting elected. Of course, they didn't change the nomination nomination fee. They didn't change the um, nomination any of the nomination requirements. They didn't change the party registrations. They didn't change the quota. They didn't introduce a, a, a threshold quota. There was nothing done which would have stopped someone who wanted to run at the previous election from running this time. All that was changed was the power over preferences were passed from parties to voters. And that's, the, as I've said, explains why micro-parties couldn't get elected. But they still, I think, left undone a number of things to do with nominations. And, and I've said this clearly. Um, Fred Nile nominated his wife as the Christian Democrat candidate in Tasmania. The Liberal Democrat, Democrats nominated, nominated Clinton... I can't remember his name, but he's the he's former mayor of Campbelltown and he's on Campbelltown Council in Sydney. So the, the current system with registered parties allows them to nominate without getting nominators. So you can nominate your candidates centrally and this allows micro parties to nominate in every state without any presence in the state. And in 2013, some of the micro parties were doing cross-state deals. So the Hemp Party was only interested in Queensland, but they stood in every state. And they agreed to direct preferences to a bunch of other parties in every other state on the basis that those parties would direct them to Hemp in Queensland. And Hemp, Hemp was the last non-elected candidate in Queensland in 2013. So that the, the ability to nominate and the loose rules for party registration led to the flood of candidates appearing. And of course, the more candidates you got, the more people went above the line. There was a herding process caused by full preferential voting below the line, herding voters above the line. And you also get confusion. I mean, you, when you've got a ballot paper one metre wide in a 600 millimetre voting square in a font that requires you to use a magnifying sheet to read it. I mean, when you're moving that ballot paper backwards and forwards with your magnifying sheet and your pencil, 
trying to vault the over line and keep track from 1 to 110 with your numbers. Um, it's a ridiculous process. And so I still think there are issues to do with the nomination which should be done. I think that um, if people want to vote nominate for the Senate, they should get local nominators. If you're an independent running for Tasmania, you need 100 people to nominate you. If you want your own group on the ballot paper, your running mate, mate needs another 100 nominators. So you need 200 nominators for a group as an independent. But if the Liberal Democrats want to nominate in Tasmania, they don't need anybody. And so that's what's bred the number of candidates standing. So I think some, some change in that area is still worthwhile. And as a proportion of the population, I think the Commonwealth has the lowest number of registered members you need. You need 750 in New South Wales compared to 500 federally. In New South Wales, you also need a $2,000 deposit, annual checks on the, on the re register, um, and you have to be registered 12 months before an election. So there's a whole set of tougher rules in every other state. incentives to stop people running. But I mean, it's cl clearly, if someone can't afford a $5,000 deposit, then what are they doing on the ballot paper? Um, to some extent, they have no chance of getting elected and, and very little chance of getting any publicity on a very large ballot paper. I think there are uh, nomination deposit, the number of registered names, um, maybe a delay on the registration of a party, more checking on people actually being members. The Commonwealth does a random check. Um, and, and so it's not as thorough as some of the states in checking these things. Um, I think they should get rid of that rule about members being able to set up their own party. I mean, uh, I haven't read your book yet, but uh, <laughs> um, from talking to Michael Maley, he says when the rules were introduced in 1983, they were originally only going to have parliamentary parties, and then they added the 500-member rule for non-parliamentary parties, uh, and so that's, that's why it's, it's an oddity. I think it's wrong that... Um, uh, Palm United had to get 500 members to get registered, but then having been elected, Glenn Lazarus and Jackie Lambie could just register a party under their own name without any difficulty, uh, and then get all the rights of registered party in terms of nomination. So I, I, I think there does need to be something to do that. And I think no, putting nominators back into the Senate system is one way of overcoming that. They can still register as a party, but if they want to run in every state, they're going to have to get organized and have people on the ground in every state. They can't just nominate centrally. The change to the electoral system may start to sort out the, the micro-party registration. As we saw at this election, there's no point in these parties all running against each other because they can't control preferences anymore. They might confuse voters, but all they're going to do is just divide the vote all over the place. Um, it's significant that the Labour Party, except for South Australia, in every state, the coalition and the Labour Party managed to get 
that turned that partial quota into an extra seat. In, in South Australia, there's a couple of reasons why that happened. But essentially, there was always preferences going towards the major parties. They weren't going to the little micro parties because nobody knew who they were. Someone might vote for the Health Australia Party um, because they like the name, <coughs> but then they go to names of parties they know. Um, the Health Australia Party, of course they were the... <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, the one thing, um, they published the How to Vote card, which was actually informal as well, which is very strange. Um, I think that, that we may see a... There is now an urge to merge produced by the new system. Um, he's not getting any younger friend now, which may help this process. But, I mean, there are five Christian parties. Why are they all running separately? Why are there five Christian parties? Why, are, why isn't there some sort of merging of Christian social conservative movements? Um, you've got the Shooters and Fishers and the Fishing and Lifestyle Party and the Liberal Democrats. And the only parties that didn't run were the Outdoor Recreation Party and the Smokers' Rights Alliance, who were both fronts for the Liberal Democrats. And the Liberal Democrats quickly realised that running front parties this time was no longer a, a viable option. I think we may see some merging in parts of spectrum between these parties, and I don't see that as a bad thing. I think if parties, um, parties that can't overcome personal differences amongst like-minded individuals are not the sort of people you really want in the Senate dealing with unlike-minded <laughs> <laughs> Well, at the back. Thanks, Anthony. Um, Oh, the two, the two are the fifth Liberal in South Australia, in Victoria, and David Lionhelm. They were the only two that were significantly, significantly below the quota. Um, if you've got 20% of the vote off with somebody else and half of that exhaust, then someone's going to get elected with less than the quota. It, it also depends uh, at what point. Uh, I think in one of the states, I think, I think Malcolm Roberts, for instance, didn't reach a quota. But by the time they distributed the only candidate that hadn't been elected, he achieved the quota. So it depends on what you mean by them reaching a quota. The, the, the technical point where they stop counting or where they continue counting can sometimes determine whether they get a quota or not. But um, of course, at a half cent election where the quota is much higher, the chances of getting someone elected with well less than a quota is much greater. Um, if you go back to the 2001 New South Wales Senate election, and I think Damon, um, when trying to estimate how the new system would work, that's one of the key ones to look at is that the last seat, the coalition had a clear three quotas, the Labor Party had exactly two quotas, and the Democrats, One Nation, and the Greens all got roughly 4%. They were the only three that could get elected, and eventually the Greens got there by some, they got there on One Nation preferences by a very funny story. Um, I shall tell you that story, <laughs> that's a great one. Um, <laughs> the Greens rang One Nation in 2001 and said, we're gonna put you last on our heart of our card because we don't like you. And nobody else rang One Nation and said that. So the One Nation decided, seeing the Greens were decent enough to tell them, oh. they put them before all the other parties. Which is how the Greens won the last seat. Anyway. Um, there's, there's a moral in that. Yes. <laughs> but um, uh, th there were three parties there on 4%. And under this system, it's quite likely that one of them would have won the seat, but they would have been well short of a quota because of exhausted preferences. So clearly, when it is unclear who wins that last seat, then it may become a bit of a lottery. I mean, that happens under non-PR 
list PR systems with the highest remainder, sometimes you can get that last seat from a very low number, depending on how divided the vote is. But there are preferences here, so that gross number will be slightly higher at the end. But uh, it will be more evidence as a phenomena at half Senate elections. In determining which senators got 12, uh, six years and which senators got three years, uh, was order of election used in any way? Or order of election was used. So Darren Hinch should have, if, by the section 282 count, uh, Victoria was two Liberal, two Labor, a Green and Darren Hinch. And New South Wales was three Coalition, two Labor and Lee Rhiannon. Uh, the two major parties decided they didn't like that. So Victoria got an extra Liberal instead of Darren Hinch, and New South Wales got an extra Labor senator instead of Lee Rhiannon. So there was a, a slight difference. They went by the order elected. Um, despite all the previous arguments on that subject, <laughs> they all got up there and mailed their platitudes and went the old way. Do you have any views on quota thresholds? Um, I don't think they're necessary with this system. Um, is that um, if you put a... Th one, there'd be a problem with... Um, at what point the thresholds applied, and two, problem with the Constitution. Um, the question of whether directly elected, if you exclude a party, if you exclude candidates because their party hasn't come to a particular vote, are you excluding them based on a vote for a party or a vote for them? So there's a, there'll, there'll be an argument which would certainly go to the High Court on that issue. But if you exclude, and, and another point which might go to the high, high Court is if you exclude them, and then you say they can't be elected, do you distribute their preferences or do you not distribute their preferences? Do you recalculate the quota at that point or not? Um, I, I think you've got all sorts of problems. I think this is the better way because you're not... Uh, actually, the West German case is a wonderful example of why you don't want threshold quotas. The last German election, Angela, Angela Merkel clearly won for the Christian Democrats CSU. But her problem was, was the two offered possible uh, coalition partners, the, I think it's the Liberal Democrats, or Germany, and there was another small right-wing party, both fell short of the 5% threshold, so neither of them got elected. So despite the right having won a clear majority of the vote, the threshold stopped Angela Merkel forming a right-wing government. She had to go with the, the, the Social Democrats. That's one of the peculiarities you get out of thresholds. I think it's much better under our system. You don't need the threshold. A party with a high first preference vote is automatically going to have a better chance under this system and the exhaustive preferences, which is determined by the voters themselves, will have the same effect as having a, having a threshold quota. So I, I don't agree with that now. Um, a slightly obscure one. Um, the ACT is the only state or territory that increased its above-the-line voting, and I have no idea why. I was wondering if you did. I suspect it's because... Um, in 2013, Simon Shape was running, and there was a lot of people trying to angle to get him elected ahead of the Liberals. You know, the only, the only, under this system, it's virtually guaranteed the Liberals that second seat in the ACT forevermore, because nobody will ever get the preferences to leap from them in the, in the future. Under the old system, that could have been arranged. There was a bit of fuss, if you remember, last time, is that the Animal Justice Party decided to direct preferences to the Liberals and the Greens in the ACT. And that became common knowledge. I think, I think what you're finding is a lot of Labor people went one for their candidate and then two for the Greens, blah, blah, blah. And I haven't been back and checked it, but I think it's very much to do with uh, the, the issue of the campaign. The ballot paper was significantly smaller this time, and voters had another option to do effectively what they were able to do below the line last time. Just three years ago, the Australian Electoral Commission was, had a reputational crisis, um, and basically 
presentation was in free fall, and yet now they've pulled this off. Did you see any residual damage from that, or do you think it's all back to normal? Um, they were fortunate there were no big significant mistakes. I mean, every election, when you're handling, when you're transferring, you know, 20, 35, 40 million ballot papers around the country, you're going to lose some, you're going to have errors. Um, we've taken it on trust that their scanning works. I mean, I've spotted a few things I find a bit odd, which I might take up with them eventually, but no, nothing serious. One of the key problems for them in WA was those missing ballot papers only became important because of the ticket voting system. A gap of one vote between candidates that finished 8th and 9th, 9th and 10th and had no chance of getting election, and it completely changed the last two candidates, was caused by preference tickets under 95% control of parties, which were tangential at a critical point. And it just so happened that all those ballot papers missing affected that thing between ninth, position between 9th and 10th. The old ticket voting system made the count very unstable. And all it took in WA was a couple of, I don't know, 1,200 ballot papers missing, and it changed the result, and there was no way you could fix the problem. Under this system, if ninth and 10th place candidates had been that close together, it probably wouldn't have mattered, because there was no way their preferences would have been strong enough. If you, under preferential voting systems, if you've got under single member electorates, if you're down to the last three candidates, who finishes third can have a big impact on who finishes first and second. But going down to seventh, eighth, and ninth under systems of tens of thousands or millions of voters where voters are given their own preferences, it very rarely has an impact. But yes, yeah, certainly um, the AEC has some long-term problems. We're not, um, um, the sort of skills that used to be used, I, I found a wonderful tape of 1964 British election coverage, and, and the BBC is bragging about all these wonderful bank tellers and clerks they've got there, or out in the counting centres, who are able to count bits of paper in, in, in fast speed all the time. Those sorts of skills have disappeared. You know, bank tellers don't count notes all the time or very often anymore. Um, you don't have people in offices who are counting the same form or dealing the same form over and over again. These, you know, people now have a, instead of being able to balance a spreadsheet top and bottom, you know, down and across, it all goes into a computer and the computer says yes or no. Um, the, the skill, I mean, I've seen some of the counting sheets that come in from the electric commission. And people have done their preference counts. And uh, how they put them on the sheet and add them up is quite remarkable sometimes. You have no idea what they're doing. Um, but that's <laughs> sort of, they, these are the sort of problems that once they get back in the office, hopefully your clerks uh, sort it out. Um, but certainly, having very simple, um, uh, see, one of the problems in WA, um, the missing ballot papers covered up for the fact that. Uh, a couple of hundred extra formal votes were found on the recount. Most of those were ballot papers marked above and below the line, and some returning officers were of the view that that was informal, and that was absolutely not correct. Um, so they've got a real problem trying to train staff and, and, and keep skilled staff around. Um, so I think these problems will recur, um, but there was nothing as spectacular as the last election that caused the same problem. Every state has 12 senators. The territories only get two. With all these even numbers and the difficulty of getting a, a majority for either right, left, or center camp, would that create a, uh, a momentum to possibly change to an even number of senators? Uh, odd number. I mean, yeah. odd. Um, look, um, I wasn't going to go into this, but I'll, I'll, I'll certainly do it here. I think one of the. Um, Changes made in 1984, which had the, the biggest long-term effect, was the increase in senators from 10 to 12, 
which resulted in half Senate elections going from five to six. And the mathematics is that if you elect six senators, you get three senators at 43%. It's almost impossible to get the fourth senator because you've got to get well above 50. At a half Senate election with an odd number, then you, at 50%, you get three of the five vacancies or four of the seven. What the change in 1984 did was make it virtually impossible for either side to ever get a majority. John Howard fluked it because they had separate tickets in Queensland in, 19, in 2004. It's a slightly longer complex thing. But it means that the crossbenchers that do get elected are the ones that determine whether this is a left or a right controlled Senate. Um, I think they should move back. I think we should move back to electing an odd number at a half Senate election. And that would make it possible for a party to get a majority in the Senate. Um, if you believe in proportional representation, where smarter parties get represented, then if a party gets a majority, they vote an election or two in a row, you'd expect they should also be able to get a majority of the seats. Um, that's an argument I think people have forgotten about, but we existed from 1901 to 1983 with the ability of governments to get control of the Senate, and we sort of ended it without, without really thinking through what that, that, that caused. I think we should move back to something like that. Um, the other thing is to do with the double dissolutions. Um, I've got to talk to John Nethercock, who knows the quotes on this, but Robert Menzies raised this in the debate in 1948, that the double dissolution actually made it more difficult for governments to use it as a threat against the recalcitrant Senate, because the Senate would be of the view that they would probably get back anyway. And I think the results of this, this election may encourage senators to actually be more recalcitrant on stuff, because the double dissolution may not be a real threat is that you just, if you just have the quota, then the way it works now under this system um, is that you're still going to get a big cross branch and the government may not get an advantage. The only advantage it gets is the joint sitting. So in that case, the government didn't even get out of this election. So I think, I, I certainly think that a half cent election should move back to an odd number. I mean, Tasmania held a royal commission on this in the 1950s. They'd had six member electorates for 80 years and they had three elections in a row with a complete deadlock. And they tried a number of mechanisms to deal with it. In the end, um, George Howard, who was one of the great advocates of PRSTV, did a, uh, produced a report and said, just elect seven per electorate, and it solved the problem. And I, yeah, uh, I just think that's what we should do with the Senate, but um, I'm not holding my breath on that one. Um, my question calls for a bit of chin-stroking speculation, so you're going to have to answer it. But I'm wondering if, based on these reforms, uh, and indeed sort of other secular trends like the decline of the, of the vote, primary vote shift in major parties, what you see is the, the major pathway through which the next micro-party phenomenon or like you know, large cross-branch phenomenon is going to come from. Like, is it going to be high-profile defections from the major parties? Is it going to be billionaires with, with name recognition like Clive Palmer or local celebrities sort of like Nick Sanibor, or, you know, what What's the pathway now for, for new political forces <coughs> in that cross-bench to, to arrive that we, have, we don't know of yet? Well, I, I, think, I think it's always good to go back to theory of how our party come about. I mean, we have a traditional class-based system. Looks like a class-based system, but it's a shadow of past class systems in many ways. Um, we've had parties that come along, the DLP, we've had split parties, you know, Lang Labor, you know, splits in the coalition at various times. We had the DLP and the Australian Democrats, which can be looked more, much more like transition parties. They're breakaways from one side of politics and the, the supporters of it tend to migrate over two decades to the other side of politics. We know people born with certain loyalties to one, you know, raised with loyalties to Labour, who are Catholics. We know it took them a long time to shift over to voting for the coalition. Preferential voting and these small transition parties played their role. 
Democrat supporters that the Greens are a new movement. They've started from the ground up. For all the people who criticise the Greens, mm. um, they started getting half a percent, one percent, two percent, and they've built and they're, they're a significant force because of their on the ground presence. And then the first party, apart from the majors, that have had a significant ability to elect local candidates, um, they will win Wills and Batman and Melbourne Ports at the next federal election. I mean. Um, they have made huge strides, and the, the whole centre of Melbourne, the Labor vote, in every one of those electorates is going down at the same rate as the Green vote is going up. So the Greens are there, and there's a, there's a style of party you can you can talk about. Is there room for a party of the right like the Greens? You know, the Cory Bernardis and uh, Erica Betts of this world, would they be more comfortable off in a party where they can all be really agreed on the things they stand for? Um, I think they'd probably find it more useful being in a bigger party where they can hold a whip hand than they would going outside of the party. So we'll see if a party emerges like that. The new system may, look, since, since Pauline Hanson arrived, um, Graham, what's that dreadful man from Calgary, Graham Campbell, Campbell. Yeah. Uh, he told a journalist friend of mine, he said, one nation, Pauline Hanson just stole all my ideas, but she just doesn't have the, my intellect to carry it through. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you remember Graham Campbell. Um, the, um, the problem of many of these parties of the right, there's a lot of, there's been quite a few of them over the last two decades, but they're all sort of chiefs and not Indians. And even One Nation, which did really well, I mean, there was a lot of people joining that party for their own causes, and they've had a very, very difficult record of keeping them all within the party uh, beyond one term, or even two, two one term. Um, perhaps the new system might encourage some of those parties to form a right party, as some of the Christian parties might be encouraged to merge in that area. Um, I think that the new Senate system will increase the power of both Tasmania and South Australia. And the simple reason for that is, if you live in Sydney and you read the media or you listen to radio or you listen to television, you will hear nothing about the Senate contest. There are 35 electorates in Sydney, there's eight or nine marginal seats. That's where all the news is happening. That's where all the leaders go. There will be no coverage of the election campaign. If you go to Tasmania, uh, once you've spoken to all the lower house candidates, you've got another four weeks to go. What do you do? You talk about the Senate. You know, um, it's the same in South Australia. I mean, they've only, well, they'll only have 10 seats at the next election. Uh, and at a double dissolution, they've got 12 senators. In Tasmania, they've got five lower house seats, 12 senators. Who's going to get more coverage? Um, where, they're, they're the states where you're going to get coverage. If you look back over the last 50 to 60 years, <coughs> all the high profile independents elected at, at joint elections have nearly all been from Tasmania. Um, they've been breakaways from the parties, Brian Herodine from the Labour Party, um, Townley and a couple of others who broke away from the Liberal Party in Tasmania. Um, what you saw with Lisa Singh being elected is something we might see more often under this new system because the parties have lost control. They will have to pay attention to their tickets in future. They can't just assume people will vote the party ticket in Tasmania. And I would say the same will occur in South Australia to some extent once people get used to the system. So, and anybody who gets kicked off their ticket in those states is likely to do what Jackie Lammy's done or, or uh, Brian Harrodin done, is when they stand, they've got a significant profile and can get elected. Uh, Glenn Lazarus didn't have nearly the ability to do that in, in Queensland, even though he tried in regional areas. Um, so I think that you will see the emergence of more regional parties. The Xenophon team did significantly well in other states, but of course it's the South Australian-based party, Jackie Lammy, Lambie is in, in Tasmania. I think you will see more of those sorts of parties. Um, or you see the One Nation type party, which is a party which is formed around a policy area 
where the parties seem to have drifted away from what parts of the electorate think. You know, the, the, the bipartisan position on asylum seekers and immigration had left a hole for somebody to run into and, 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 and form a new party, which is what, where One Nation um, came into things. So if you see something like that, then potentially. But yeah, I think the ability of someone to get fluke an election under the ticket voting system and therefore build a profile, um, that's unlikely. Uh, the only person who's managed to do that is Nick Xenophon who got elected with two and a half percent originally in South Australia and then built a, built a phenomena from it, but nobody else has managed to do it. Uh, and then we were going to go to one of my students. Just one of you. Come on, you can ask questions. I'm grading, I'm grading them this week. You think they might try to impress? Yeah, yeah. Give us some time to think about a question. If not, Maria's got one. No, we've got Ken No, no, I haven't done, but I think it's worth all day. Um, last year, for something else, I dug back Crick and Garen, which is a wonderful old book on the origins of the Constitution. And there's this whole section where they're talking about the Senate as the keystone of the entire Constitution, allowing the states to bind. And, you know, it's all about the states, the states' house, the states' house. And from day one, it was never a states' house. Um, and so we've got a double dissolution power, which is all designed around um, resolving deadlocks between the states. And we've never had anything like that in our, in our history. And so we've got a, couple, a, peculiar, a whole series of peculiarities in the Constitution which were based around this negotiation between the states. Um, but we've had party-based politics, so we've got a, a couple of oddities like that in the Constitution. Um, in the end, uh, as I always say, the original Constitution in 1891 specified what the American Constitution did, is it didn't specify, I think it said that the joint houses of the states would directly elect the senators. By 1898, they decided the, pop, the populist movement had taken hold and they said they must be elected. And then they went down the path of ensuring the mandate was the same as the lower house by tying the uh, franchise together. And so it became a popularly elected chamber. Um, and so the argument that there were state representatives is really now replaced by the fact that they're, they're representatives of the state, of, of the voters of the state. They're not representatives of the state. Um, we forget that in 1901, when Australia became a nation that not all the American states elected their senators. And I think the, the amendments to the Constitution which enforced the election of senators didn't come until 1913. And a number of them still appointed them um, in 1901. So um, we have the most powerful, I think it's the, I think in records, Australia had a number of important things in the, with the Constitution. We voted on the Constitution, which is very strange. It's now common practice, part of UN uh, nation building practice. And we created a very powerful Senate that was fully popularly elected with a full, full, full franchise, um, which was the only upper house in the world, I think, at that stage, which was, was of that style. So there's a couple of things there, but really the old argument, it's, it's a straw man, the, the Senate as a state's house. I think, um, I do think, as I said about Tasmania and South Australia, I think the new electoral system might give some of those crossbenchers a bit more power. Some of us remember the Fraser government. Fraser would often have problems with his Tasmanian senators who would cross the floor. Um, because they knew in those days that if they got demoted off the ticket, they could still get elected. 
and that's why they just had to put up with them being sort of rather recalcitrant from time to time. After 1984, nobody crossed the floor. You know, you, you were going to get tossed off a ticket, and if you're on a ticket, you might not get elected. So I think um, if, if, if the new system does have an impact and makes the states more important, I think it may be that Tasmania and South Australia will become more important. And I think Nick Xenophon's just proving that you can make a state important in the Federation just by uh, voting for somebody other than the major parties. Just to follow on, is it, so do you see a problem with this uh, this juncture between you know the, the original intent and the constitutional and these uh, subsequent more conventional? I mean, as you say, it's been like that from Is that a problem? Well, a contradiction, or do we just live with this? I've got to say, I think, I mean, the original intent of the, intent of the Constitution wasn't to have an all-powerful Commonwealth and weak states, um, but that's what we've got. And so I, I think, you know, I think there's a number of things in the Constitution. I mean, uh, let's just say I think constitutional reform has really gone off the board in this country and nobody ever wants to go near it. And I think, you know, it's time somebody did pick it up and have a few discussions about these things, but uh, it just gets bogged down in politics. I think the state's house... Um, try to deal with the states and the Senate and make it more of a state's house has about as much chance of fixing vertical vis fiscal imbalance. It's just, it's just the, something that's just gone off the agenda altogether. You guys have just written papers on like <laughs> the state's representation in the Senate and vertical fiscal imbalance. Well, the 88 proposal tied the Senate to the House, got rid of the rotation, and, and elect, you know, elected the whole Senate at once. Um, and it, Peter Reith with the campaign against that on the basis of the terms weren't fixed. Um, so that was defeated. We had three other goes at trying to tie the Senate term to the House. One of them got a majority, but it was defeated in three of the states. Um, it was put up by Labor, it was put up by Liberal, and every time the other side ran against it. Um, <coughs> I can't see four-year terms because it has to come down to a constitutional referendum. It means resolving what you do with the Senate. Do you still have the staggered terms? Or do you go to electing the whole Senate at once? Uh, if you do that, what do you do about the double dissolution power? That's in there. Um, the fixed terms, you're going to have fixed terms. You've got to come up with a method of rejigging re the term after fixing the terms. Um, so there's a whole bunch of, there's quite a lot of change involved there. And every one of them get completely bogged down in detail and allow someone to storm off in high dudgeon and say, look what you're doing. I mean, in 1967, um, we remember the referendum on Indigenous rights in 1967. What we forget, there was enough referendum at, referendum at the same time which tried to block, break the nexus between the two houses so that the house size of the house could increase without increasing the Senate all the time um, so that the two-to-one ratio would be broken. That was defeated because the DLP ran against. Um, the major parties were in agreement and the DLP ran a very vigorous campaign that this was going to weaken the state, weaken the Senate. The referendum on um, tying the Senate terms to the House in 1977 was also defeated by Joe Bianca Peterson running around the country saying this will weaken the power of the Senate. And in 1977, with the memory of the Whitlam government, for Conservatives that was still a big issue, so, you know, ensuring the Senate power is there. Um, I suspect someone running a campaign that this will weaken the power of the Senate has probably diminished as an issue. But there's now also a lot of people out there who view it as a, a protection against government. It's become a, a different sort of thing. So I think whatever way you go down this path, you're going to find somebody is going to run off. And the history 
of referendums is, is if somebody's campaigning against a referendum, and it's very hard to get it up. Did you again, well? Okay. Did we have a double, dis a d a double uh, joint sitting, or did they just not bother? Uh, this time? Yeah. Uh, they haven't. Uh, it hasn't got there yet. It hasn't got there yet. Uh, the difficult with a joint sitting is that um, you can't amend the bill of the joint sitting. It, it, there were no amendments to the bill originally, so when it comes to joint sitting, all the joint sitting can do is consider it. It can't go clause by clause, it just accepts it. It can take any amendments that were before the election. Um, uh, it's likely they can get it through the set. It's likely they can get it through with amendment, but they can't amend it at a joint sitting. So it looks like they're going to go down the path of amending it by normal legislation through the Senate. And so and the have a joint sitting? No, the joint sitting won't handle it. The legislation has to be put again and be defeated before you can hold a joint sitting. That's the, the next leg. The next leg is have to put the bill up again. It's got to be defeated, and at that point, you can cause it to call a joint sitting. But you can't amend the bill at a joint sitting. So what they'll probably do is put the bill up and amend it as normal legislation. Another one. Am I right in saying that the next election will be in the first half of uh, 2019, and that we'll be stuck in first half year election? Uh, this is this is a great one. Um, <laughs> they can't have a half senate election before August 2018. Senate is now there for the next two years. There's nothing we can do about it, apart from another, another double dissolution. And I suspect everyone's gone off that idea. <laughs> um, <coughs> the um, the Victorian election is the last is the fourth Saturday in November 2018. The New South Wales election is the fourth Saturday in March 2019. Both of those elections can be moved. Uh, the Victorian election can be moved if the election is held the same day. The Victorian election, New South Wales election can be sort of wafted around under some strange governor's provision, which is a bit hard to interpret. Um, so the, uh, they can move the New South Wales election. The Commonwealth election would have to be announced before the Commonwealth, and then before New South Wales, then New South Wales could move this election. It may well be it's in September or October 2018 before Victoria. Um, it's a bit hard to squeeze it in at the end of 2018 after Victoria which means you're trying to do it in February before the New South Wales election, or you can only march and New South Wales moves, or you hold it in May after Easter. Um, so but it's it, got to be before the 1st of July. It had, well, it probably has to be before mid-May so they can count the Senate votes, because the Senate's got to be finalised. So, I mean, the House can go all the way to later in the year, but the Senate has to be held before the middle of, middle of 2019. So my guess is um, it might actually be in two years' time. There's also a redistribution during Victoria as well. It's a couple of big redistributions, actually. <laughs> yes. Oh, where? Does that know where it'll come from? I'll take my tie off if it encourages more students to be less intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of those? No? I thought one of you were here. I'm actually getting hot. I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was going to ask Mr. Green, um, as you. Did he see the election result of the fighting that's happening in USA? Because somehow somebody got into both parties, um, you know, whatever they call computers. Oh, they had to. And we don't know. Exactly what's going to happen now. Well, I'm going to say I'm down in um, I'm down in Canberra for the ACT election, which uh, 
he's not going to be as exciting <laughs> as the American election. I suspect, but I suspect it will take long to decide. <laughs> I'm not expecting a long night for the American election. Um, I, I, well, I, I'm not a student of American politics, and, and I don't, I'm always quite unsure why everybody else is a student of American politics because his system is so is just unique. I mean, no other. I think some of Latin American countries have tried to copy it, but apart from that, nobody else in the world uses that sort of system. Nobody else has this structured two-party system which is built into the whole electoral process. Nobody else has an electoral system which runs for so long, which has so many checks and balances in the Constitution, um, and can produce a candidate like Donald Trump. I mean, for some of us with longer memories, must remember Gary Hart was to be kicking himself. How did Gary Hart... <laughs> He ran in 2004 for the Democrats who were trying to get pre-selection and an affair was, it turned out he'd had an affair and he had to resign and stuff. And they caught him at it. Pardon? They caught him at it. They killed him outside the house. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it was a photograph that killed him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot more philandering since. But anyway, I just... Um, Maybe you didn't do enough of it. Uh, like look, I, <laughs> <laughs> certainly something is happening in world politics. Um, the Brexit vote, I mean, was it the Brexit vote? Um, What's the rise of Donald Trump, the re-emergence of right-wing parties all through Europe in, in the post-immigration crisis? Hungary. Uh, Hungary. And then we've got um, um, the rise of, of other parties in Australia and a re-emergence of, um, of, of one nation. So there are things going on in the electorate. I think others like uh, others are far better. Ian McAllister and Co can probably say far more about these sorts of things in a comparative sense. But clearly, something's going on in the in the world electorate, and our party system is struggling to cope with it. No, Max here. Oh. Um, so, at the end of the this election, there was a lot of speculation about how long it would take uh, to count under the new Senate ballot because it was more complex in yes. distributing the um, the preferences than the old system, um, and a lot of those ended with calls for electronic voting. Um, what is your view on on implementing electronic voting in Australia, and I guess uh, the effects that that would have maybe on Australia's democratic culture around the fact that we are a compulsory voting nation, and there is a lot of um, I guess public uh, event that goes into each election. If you have electronic voting, it's very difficult to do it all on one day, mm -hmm. um, and um, the ACT will, will take probably nearly a third of its vote electronically at this election. Uh, a quarter to 30% of the vote is being cast early. As is occurring everywhere, over half of the votes in the Northern Territory were taken before election day. Um, so we're seeing a rise in that early voting. That early voting is very difficult to count for the electoral commissioners. They're having to count. Um, on, election, on election day, most polling places, one, two, 3,000 votes. Some of these pre-poll voting centres are taking 12,000, 15,000 votes, and they can't count them at 6 o'clock on the night. It very, very, takes very long time to count them. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're still getting results at midnight for this election, because some of these counting centres take a long time to deal with. So they have a physical problem of counting these votes, and in some states like um, Victoria, under their acts, all pre-poll votes are taken as ordinary votes, but they're all in the one ballot box, so they can't count them on the night because they have to reconcile them against multiple rolls. If you could start to have these multiple pol multiple electorate polling stations like Sydney Town Hall or Melbourne Town Hall, if you could do them electronically, you can count for every electorate, then you can get the count on the night, and you can do all the reconciliation, the ballot papers. You don't have 
vast numbers of absent votes that you're reconciling with. So there's a whole bunch of things you can do in that area, and but to do it, you have to actually legislate to allow electronic voting, and then you can have trials. So my suggestions to some of these committees is, when the acts of electronic voting can take place, um, I suspect in, in initially it will have to be, once you get your vote, you get a receipt, and you put the receipt in a ballot box as an audit trail. So initially, there'd have to be that sort of trust mechanism. But unless you amend the act to allow it, you can't do trials, and the trials should be supervised and decided on, and, and audit checks done. Um, so there's lots of things in that area that should be done. There are actually quite simple things that can resolve a few problems that were occur occurring in the federal election. Um, in New South Wales and Victoria, when you've got to vote, if you're not on the roll in your electorate and you try and vote absent, they will check to see where you live and see what electorate you're in, and they'll give you the correct ballot paper. In Commonwealth elections, they do not have the machine with all the state rolls on, and so people are given the wrong ballot paper. And it's the reason why I think there's about uh, there's 140,000 more Senate votes than House votes at the federal election, and that's entirely down to people's absent votes, where their Senate vote counted because they were on the roll in the state, but the House ballot paper they were given was the wrong one. So there's tens of thousands of these ballot papers which are wandering across the country to returning offices to be dealt with. And, and in fact, they can't count anyway. So there's a lot of that sort of paperwork involved. Um, New Zealand allows voters to download a ballot paper if they're overseas, fill it in, and upload it back to the Electoral Commission. Tasmania allows the same thing where you can email back the ballot paper. Now, there's some slight breach of the secrecy in that process, but that allows more overseas votes to count, and you don't end up with these horrible lays while you know, a ballot paper's coming back from somewhere in Kazakhstan, you're trying to get back to Australia in time for two weeks. So it's those sorts of things. If you could, say, collect all the one, um, um, Australia House in London ballot papers electronically, you wouldn't be having to wait for those bundles to come back to Australia. Some of the states have moved to centrally processing all absence and pre-polls. So instead of everything going back to the returning officers, so you know, from all around the country, these ballot papers wended their way to the perennial count in Herbert that was going on. In New South Wales and WA and Victoria, a lot of them are all done centrally. The absence don't go back to the returning office. The absence come into the central processing and are dealt with there. They are not then further distributed. So there's a whole bunch of things they could do which could make the count more efficient. But to do that, they have to change the act, because the act is quite prescriptive in what you do. Um, so I think they do need to look down the path of electronic voting. It needs to be trialled and it's staged implementation. And the way it will work is more and more pre-polled votes are done electronically. And, and, and that will mean that um, it will make my job rather boring. <laughs> because you'll suddenly have all these thousands of votes suddenly come in at five minutes past six. Although the first time the ACT did electronic voting, they promised me that as well. And my executive producer was unwise enough to believe the electoral coverage. <laughs> and um, so we started our election coverage at six o'clock, thinking we we're going to get these votes at five past six. <laughs> and about quarter to six, Phil Green says, oh, I've got a problem. Um, um, and I think we were on air till 7.15 with no votes. <laughs> Bob McMullen told me he's the most that's the longest he's ever spoken about nothing in his life. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, I expect that, I mean, these things do improve, but uh, certainly you would get a lot more votes early on, and certainly in New Zealand. The other way you can do this, of course, in New, they do this in New Zealand, um, all their advance votes, uh, I can't think of the category they call them, but they're all counted in the afternoon, and they're released after 7 o'clock. The difference is in New Zealand, it is illegal to campaign in New Zealand. There are no posters, there's no handbills, there's nothing. Um, the All Black fullback tweeted at the last election, I just voted for John Key. And they had the police come around and suggest not do it again. Um, <laughs> not vote, but tweet, I mean. Um, <laughs> um, so, so on the day, there are 
scrutineers available. The problem in Australia, because of on-the-day campaigning, there are not scrutineers available before six o'clock. So we can count them in the afternoon, but the parties are going to have to trust that the Electoral Commission will get it right, and so that's, that's one of the problems there. So yes, I think there are trials coming. My favorite afternoons was sitting at a what do you call a, a count you did with uh, Tasmania and South Australia at the same time. Mm. When do you anticipate that any states might ever do something like that ever again, or even aim to get something like that again? Let's let's just say um, I remember in two thousand six, which was the first time that clash occurred, and um, uh, there were all these rumours that Tasmania was going to go early. And I said, well, they won't call it on the 18th of March because that's when South Australia is being held. And anyway, uh, about a month before, I was um, go back to Sydney Airport, and Anthony Albanese, who I've known for years, he's my local MP, met me at the airport. Ah, I'll give you a lift, give you a lift, come off car. And I got in the car, and, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said, oh, look, um, yeah, look, I don't think they'll hold it on that day. Uh, I think uh, that's the same day as South Australia. And Albanese just said to me, he said, mate. He said, uh, if I was Paul Lennon, that's the one day I'd call it. It'd stop all those bloody mainland press going down there and annoying you about the pulp mill. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. And he got no coverage on the mainland. And so in 2010 and 2014, the Labour Party thought this was a great move and this is a great way to win elections. And so they've done it twice more since, much to my annoyance. Now I've <laughs> chatted to Will Hodgman. I said, but Will, I think it's a really bad idea holding it the same day as South Australia. You know, it means Tasmania gets no coverage across the rest of the country. All that free time you can have on the night and gets buried by another election the same day. Hopefully they don't have it the same day. But uh, that's, that is now the only state which has a variable day. Tasmania. But your real reason is you can't be in two spots at the same time. <laughs> yes. You're leaving a vacuum for someone else. Yes, I mean, look, look, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not about me. It's not about me. <laughs> The Senate count was very frustrating for those of us who are big for all three of us, because there was no results for a very long time, and there were some scrutineers who were going and taking records, and this is how we knew about uh, Lisa Singh's uh, vote. But otherwise, there was just nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, the AEC announces, tomorrow we're going to press the button, they press the button, and you get the full results. In the ACT, who also um, now have a relatively similar system to the federal system in the ballot papers are scanned, and you've got a continual data entry of ballot papers. And in the ACT, they do a provisional count, um, uh, an indicative provisional count. They do it on the, on the night with um, the early votes because they're all electronic. And as they scan ballot papers each day, they do another one. So you can see... Um, what the Senate count is at any sort of point in time and, and follow it through. Is there any good reason not to do that federally? Um, oh, several things I can tell you. There's a, a great instance in 2003 in New South Wales and the Legislative Council there is the only one that still uses random sampling um, to do surplus to preference, preferences from surplus candidates. Um, and the whole point of it is you do the sample once and declare the winners. You, know, you don't do it multiple times. Um, and to make the, rather than use computers to make the count accurate, they use computers to make the random sample accurate. It's a great thing. So if you do the count again, you might get a different result. And the electric commission at the time, they'd computerised the whole count, and he wouldn't hit the button to test it. 
um, because I cannot read random stuff once. He was a lawyer. Yeah. And so I come the big day and all the media were there to, uh, to report the results of the council. Hit the button and the program fell over. Um, <laughs> something to do with uh, um, they've been trying to fill in blank squares or something and then put nulls instead of blanks. And if you do anything in certain computer language, you know that makes a difference and this caused the whole thing to fall over. But um, certainly the federal level where they don't have this issue with the random sampling. And even with random sampling, I know the New South Wales Election Commission do hit the button <coughs> earlier nowadays. But, um, the Commonwealth, I'd certainly the commissioners have a look as they get closer and closer today. It was bizarre at this election that the AEC were tweeting every day that we're declaring the results in Bradfield today, but they never tweeted they were about to hit the button on the Senate. So or, or even that they were like 10% through the data entry, 20% through. Yeah, it was really strange the way they managed that process. One of the difficulties is, um, is, is the website there to allow people distantly to scrutiny your account? The scrutineers are at the site, they probably have more information than the AEC can ever put on the screen. And that's always one of the difficulties I think that comes here. The way they were counting the votes, I think in Tasmania in particular, they were taking batches from polling places and thinking these are above the lines, we'll sort them out first and scan them. And then they dealt with the below the lines. And so people who were madly trying to model Tasmania were getting samples which were biased by the fact they weren't getting all the below the lines. And so, look, I, is it the Commission's job to get the count right and accurate and reproducible? or to produce the data in such a format that people who are obsessed about it can model it. Um, and there's literally five of you, I think. I can, <laughs> I can think of four, Ben and Kevin Bonham and... Yeah. And on the last it. thing about hitting the buttons, yes, probably, um, except most of the counts, um, it takes a while, you have to wait a while. The ACT, I mean, they're going to release all the electronic votes, which is about 25%. Which is a in the first half hour. And there's a reasonably representative. And then by 7 o'clock, they'll give us the distribution of preferences. Later in the evening, they'll get another 8% electronic, and they'll do another distribution of preferences. So they've got a good sample of the votes. The problem with the Commonwealth is all they have is a record that there is a one in this column, and you're going to have to wait. You're probably going to wait two weeks before we can even do that. Um, so I think that's the, I, I agree with you. That's, that would be nice for them to do. Um, do you reckon the media would understand it? Can you imagine the Australian if for... I actually remember because we did the, you remember the Senate calculator on the ABC side, you know, it's like a great invention which has been ruined by this reform. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in South Australia for a while there at the 2010 election, I think it was, Bob Day suddenly popped up as being elected and then dropped back. Well, one of the difficulties is when he got a partial count, how would, how would the... Um, how would the Australian treat the fact that he had five days in a row of Bob Day getting elected and suddenly a Green was elected instead? <laughs> this is some rot by the Electoral Commission. That's, I think, why they're very cautious about it. So I can understand why they're... Uh, some of the states get away with doing things that the AEC would be crucified for. And when the states do get them wrong, people blame the AEC anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> in some rather rowdy pub because the Blue Jays had just won their way into the final or something. Right? <laughs> and they delayed it for an hour and they were still raucous at the end. Um, 
And someone was very vigorously arguing with me about whether the alternative vote as opposed to first past the post would elect more women. And, and the answer was any system which is based on preferences, which is based on what voters fill in as choices for candidates, will be affected by whether people vote for men or women in various different ways. Um, the Hare Clark system in Tasmania used to often be mentioned as being difficult to get women elected under. Um, that's a rather old-fashioned view now. I don't think that's nearly as, as obvious now. Um, but certainly, New Zealand with MMP, um, all the parties take some, go to some effort to ensure their ticket has gender and race balances and the like. Um, it is easier to do those sorts of things under ticket-type systems like the Senate. The parties can get better balances if they elect more than one senator. If a Labor Party's going to elect three senators in the state, it's much easier to pick some form of balance on the ticket. Um, so that's the advantage. But if it comes down to who people are voting for and you're counting exact preferences, it's not always clear-cut that men or women, uh, that women do as well or better. But certainly, proportional representation where you have list-type systems, it's much easier to try and get women into parliament because you can sort of specify, parties can choose to have a third of their candidates in winnable seats. It's much harder to define a winnable seat in single member seat systems. So I was wondering whether, as a result of the introduction of the new system, there was a change in the behaviour of the parties in terms of their interaction with voters or also, like, more generally? Um, it's interesting that the parties all published uh, how to vote with one to six. And clearly they tried to, it's, it's funny actually, the Greens seem to balance their tickets in Queensland by issuing different how to votes in each election. It made it very hard to figure out who was following and how to vote when you look at the data. It's, it's, it's very complex. And the smaller the party, the fewer people ever saw the how to vote anyway. I think Kevin Bottom did some work and found that in one state, the Renewable Energy Party got only one person following the how to vote. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it, and that was probably luck, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm still trying to figure out why the, there's a party called VoteFlux.org and for some reason 40% of its supporters in New South Wales gave their second preference to the Christian Democrats. I never saw the how to vote, so. They seem to be the new incarnation of the old senator online. Yes. Yeah. At least the same idea. Yeah, all my students love it. Um, <laughs> I can't understand their website, it's all gobbledygook. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think um, the major parties, the, the, the reason major parties issue how to votes is to, is to ensure that their voters cast a formal vote. In most cases, in the lower house, major party preferences are irrelevant. The point of a how to vote is to make people vote, cast a formal vote, because they must number all the squares. For the minor parties in the lower house, again, preferences might have an influence, um, because, because they're counted more, therefore they're interested in, in influencing. So that's the main purpose for the how to vote, because the Senate's held at the same time, they put a Senate how to vote on. And so that's what's there. The parties did it. They tried various different methods. Some of them put one, two, three in boxes. Some of them put one in a square and then, then two, three, four listed underneath. Some of them tried to imitate the entire ballot paper and you had numbers all over it, but they were so small you couldn't read the font, so it was a bit useless. Um, no one's, I think, worked out a way to direct preferences above the line. As long as there are giant ballot papers, it's going to be very difficult for people to follow out of our card because they've got to try and get this thing which looks like that to match this thing which looks like that. Um, if the ballot papers get smaller, I suspect how to vote cards are get, get more influential. Um, the coalition was happy with what was the original proposal for the Senate system, which is one with all further preferences optional. The one to six was an insistence of the Greens and, and Nick Xenophon, and, and I just hammered them about the savings provisions, and that's how it all sort of came, me, me and a couple of others, that's how it all came about. Uh, how the parties react to it, we'll see how they go in the future, but um, 
I think a fair few of the minor parties might work out that it's better for them to run joint tickets. It's a <laughs> joint tickets. Because um, Hemp and the Sex Party ran joint tickets. Mm -hmm. And the Cyclops Party and the Science Party ran joint tickets as well. So we may see more of those sorts of agreements. But to be honest, if you've got three Christian parties, rather than run joint tickets, they'd probably be better off just agreeing on one ticket anyway. Um, so we'll see, how the, we'll see how the parties react to this new system. But there'll be a lot of pouring over this data, I'm sure. This is where Senate voting comes back to student politics. And you're talking about joining tickets and running weed from this groups. was that the group's voting ticket. I mean, a lot of this stuff exploded in 2013. It had been going on for a decade. In 2004, there were a whole series of deals between right-wing parties and Christian parties and outdoor recreation people. It's a deliberate attempt to try and get Labor to the third seat in a couple of states instead of the Greens. Um, that was the basis of the deal with Family First in Victoria, which resulted in Stephen Fielding getting elected when Labor didn't do as well. It was a deliberate attempt to get the third Labor candidate up ahead of the Green. The same deal worked in South Australia and it worked in New South Wales where Labor won three seats in both states. Um, uh, so I don't think the Greens regret that because the system was working against them uh, and being deliberately used against them and it stopped Labor doing these little side deals. So that's, that's, that was the basis of it. So I think they're quite happy with it. Um, optional preferential voting. Tony Abbott would have been Prime Minister in 2010 under optional preferential voting. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, the Labor, since 1990, the coalition has won two seats from behind on first preferences, and Labor has won 86. It's the Labor Party which is overwhelmingly benefited from full preferential voting. Um, the Labor Party won 15 seats from second place at the recent federal election. Um, in From 15% behind in Melbourne ports, they wouldn't have had hope under optional preferential voting from that far behind. <coughs> and that's why when an opposition bill was going through the Queensland Parliament last year to increase the size of the Parliament, the Labor Party in committee shoved in a, a, an amendment to abolish optional preferential voting at the same time because they were viewing it was now working against them, so they went back to full preferential voting. In the Northern Territory, they brought in optional preferential voting just recently because they thought it would assist them. Um, it certainly lowered the informal vote substantially. Uh, but if it came in at the Commonwealth level, it would disadvantage Labor because they wouldn't get a strong flow of green preferences, but the National Party would be very opposed to it because they view it as being, under optional preferential voting, the, it's one of the things that caused the merger of the LNP in Queensland, and it's the other reason why there hasn't been a three-corner contest at New South Wales state seat since 1999. They just won't run against each other under optional preferential voting because it makes it easier for Labor to win. Did Um, 
the Senate system, I always like to say upper houses are something you inherit rather than invent, and that's certainly the case in the States. Um, the Senate and the system we have now is a case of incrementalism. It wasn't designed to work as it is, it just keeps altering from the original system. It's constantly altered. Um, the change to preferential voting in the lower house forced them to do something about the Senate. <clears throat> um, the increase in the size of the Senate from 36 to 60 in 1949 forced them to think again about proportional representation. Um, the Senate that was elected in 1946 had 35 Labor members and one coalition member. Um, what was the point of increasing to 60 senators if you were going to get that sort of number? So that's, why, that's one of the things that drove PR. Um, but other things have just um, evolved over time. I mean, ticket voting was brought in to deal with informal voting. It wasn't brought in as a mechanism of controlling preferences in the way that it, it came to be used. The other parties learned that this was something they could use. Um, the ordering of candidates on the ballot paper was a byproduct of the 1937 Senate election when the Labour Party, in those days, they didn't, ran, they didn't do a random draw for the columns on the ballot paper. They did it based on a formula based on the first letters of candidates' names. And the Labour Party stood four candidates in New South Wales whose names started with the letter A, so they drew the first column. And so they introduced the random draw at the next election, and at the same time they said, well, why should we lift the candidates in, in alphabetical order? And that's when the parties got the power to control the order of the ticket, and that became much more important later. So there's a whole series of things. We've ended up with um, party groupings on the ballot paper. Ireland, which has the same system, does not have party groupings. There are so many things which are contingent on what we've learnt over the years and what's been adopted or experimented within the states to produce the system we've got now. It certainly was not designed the way it is. It just developed. It evolved. It evolved rather than... It's an example of uh, evolution rather than divine inspiration. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.